The psalmist stated in Psalm 32, verse number 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous. And certainly, isn't it fair to say that we have every luxury and opportunity as those in the Lord to rejoice, to be excited, to be glad, understanding, oh, how much the God of heaven has done on your behalf and on mine. It's good to be together today on this first day of the week. These songs that we've sung together, the prayers in which we've collectively prayed, and the opportunity to reflect upon a section of the Word of God. You can already tell what the title of the lesson is today, and I hope that as we develop that, we can each be encouraged and motivated to revisit some basic understandings of what's involved in that which is of success and that which is of failure. This opening slide, this introductory one really, is one that I suppose does nothing but simply mention the words that I've just brought to your appreciation. There's not a single doubt that all of us, every person wants to be a success. I think it's safe to say nobody wakes up on any day and says, I want to be a failure today. I want to be a failure over this section of my life. No one desires to fail. No one has an interest in actually having that to be the final outcome. We want to be successful. We like to be those on the side of success. What do you and I think then today about success? What's involved in making that, in fact, come to pass? I'd like to begin this lesson really by defining it. What is typically meant as you and I, or in fact as the world at large, might use the word success? I suspect that much of what we're about to consider will not be surprising. It'll not be shocking. But I do hope it'll at least be rather directive to help you and me to the rest of the lesson. It's been rather easily said, I think, that success is a part of the human DNA. Like I mentioned a moment ago, nobody wants to fail. Nobody wants in any avenue of life to fail. Now, it's true that you and I may not be great at everything we do, but at least we want to be able to be said to accomplish something by way of it. But to fail is surely not a part of what we would wish in any way. But I might use that to ask this question, so what do you mean by the word success? What might well be in mind as that word is used? I have a chart I'd like to show you, and so I'm going to transition to that, and we'll go back in just a moment to that previous slide. Now, I realize a couple of pie charts are presented, and really what this is is the result of a survey taken of a rather large sampling of the American population about what is involved in being successful without looking at the details of the various sections of that pie chart. I'm just going to read the things up at the top. These are the categories that were used to quantify, to define the metrics, if you will, concerning success. They are, if you read from left to right, education, character, finance, that writing is so small, I'm going to have to look at my notes, I'm afraid. Education, relationships, character, finance, health, work, quality of life, and status. Those were the only eight categories, and they formed the sum total of what could be said to characterize a successful person. Again, those eight were education, relationships, character, finance, health, 
work, quality of life, and status. There were no other avenues, no other compartments, no other issues used to help quantify and define success. And thus, a person who was said to be successful had at least some degree of aptitude in all, apparently, of those eight. You may notice at the bottom, at least in the pie charts, the one at the left is the perceived societal breakdown. The one on the right is the actual personal breakdown, as many people responded. Again, I would point out, isn't it interesting what the categories were? That is at all. Let's go back to the previous slide. You may look near, near the bottom. There was a far more expansive survey done, at least in some way. And I'd like to read to you the results of this at the bottom. Now, most of this I've actually shared with you, so you can read it just, just as I'm able to do, to, to do the very much the same. So when I ask, what is it that allows a person to say that I am successful? What would you like to be the case in your life if you're said to be successful? Those responded, responded like this. I want to be married, two children, four best friends, a bachelor's degree, an annual income of no less than $150,000. I want to have a job working 31 hours a week at most. I would prefer to work from home, but if I must commute, a commute of no more than 10 minutes. Every year, five weeks of vacation, I'd like to be able to travel three times a year, some, some extensive vacation or otherwise traveling episodes. My house value should be no less than $450,000, and my car's value no less than $40,000. And if that's what I have, I'm successful, according to those that responded. Are you seeing a pattern in this? whether it be that earlier pie chart arrangement or whether it be this, isn't it rather clear what the vast majority, it seems, of Americans consider success to be? So success is married with a couple of kids, a nice bachelor's degree with a fine house, a fine car, lots of time for vacation, lots of time for various trips and otherwise. That's success at least in the mind of many. May I ask each of us a question just to ensure that our priorities are not moved aside? How does the Bible define success? Does the Bible define success? And if it does, what is that definition? I would submit that each of us should rather be quick that if the Word of God has things to say about success, we surely would wish to know some of the things that the Word of God would say. I'd like to begin by at least pointing out there's anything wrong with having a nice car or a house or nothing wrong with having a job you can work from home. The issue I would think that would bother all of us would at least ask, were there any things not mentioned in that list? Any things not on either list that would be rather prime considerations in the Bible? I'd like to offer you three observations at first, and then we'll launch into the remainder of our lesson. It's easy to see that all the things mentioned on this slide have to do with material matters readily appreciable 
at least in so many ways. Vacation time, cars, houses, commute times, things like that. As you look, though, before you on the slide, one of the things we must remember, because the Word of God is so strong in that light, is to appreciate the fact that life in this flesh is brief. How long is the car going to last? You may use it a couple of decades, maybe a little bit more, but that's it. In Job 7, verse number 6, the, the patriarch of old commented rather strongly in the midst of his duress in life. He rather amazingly stated that this life, you see, is to be likened to a weaver's shuttle. Have you ever seen a person spinning with a loom or, again, placing fabric and yarn together to, to form clothes? You notice how rapidly that loom moves. That's what Job compares life to. You'll also notice in Job 9.25 that life is likened to a post. This swift runner in the ancient day that was able to get from A to B in a very quick time, carrying some message or piece of information, Job said life is that way. In Job 14.1, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. One of the things that I would think would be fair to note in light of these lists, all of these seem like wonderful materialistic things. May we never forget life will have its challenges. Things aren't always going to go such a rosily sweet way. What's going to happen in those times? Will you be fortified against the onslaught that you face? Will you be able to have a faith that will allow you to withstand and emerge victorious? Not only that. In Psalm 39, verse 5, life is likened to a handbreadth in terms of its brevity. It's so swift. And maybe James put the icing on that cake in James 4, 13 when he said this life is like a vapor that appears for a little while, a little time, and vanishes away. And so one of the things we might notice is that if one success only includes things on this list, you're missing the major matter you're missing one of the most essential and vital and critical elements of all. But not only that, these material things just don't last. Not a single one of those material things can you take with you to the grave. Not a single one of them. In Zephaniah 1.18, the prophet of old declared so strongly, your riches to the people of Israel, they're not going to save you in the day of God's judgment. I find it intriguing that even the, the great pomp and circumstance of the Roman Empire, the same was said of them in Revelation 18, your riches won't save you. Surely in light of all of that, should we not remember some of the statements of the Lord in Matthew the 6th chapter? In fact, it might well be the definitive statement on this point when Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust hath corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust hath corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now at that time, Jesus didn't say it's wrong to have money. He didn't say it's wrong to have a house and a car. But what He did say is if that's your treasure, if that's the sum total of it, you have some misguided priorities. 
the next point on that slide is this. It then follows easily that it's a foolish thing to only base success on the things you and I noticed earlier in those lists. It's a wonderful blessing to enjoy them. It's a great thing to have the luxury of, of, of possessing them. But they do not form the sum total of that discussion on success. Don't you find it amazing to reflect on Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 7? We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can take nothing out. And there it is. It doesn't matter what you and I accumulate. It doesn't matter the number of possessions that may be ours. It may not matter at all the number of issues connected to a deed that you and I possess. We can't take them with us. Surely in that light, you'll notice then as Paul urged the, the, the people of Timothy's day in that light, he pointed out so easily in verse number 10, it's then the love of money is the root of all evil. And so many covet after it. Are you beginning to see that appears to be the case, at least for many who answered that survey earlier. They didn't even think about including God in the definition of success. There was no mention of the church in the definition of success. No connection whatsoever in either list that you and I know. In fact, none that I was able even to find. As you journey forward on that slide, Jesus also, of course, addressed another element of this as you and I would come to that eighth chapter of the gospel according to Mark. In fact, in the last verses of that chapter, verses 36 and 37, Jesus, in response to a circumstance that had been brought to him, he pointed this out. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now those questions are those which prompt you and I in our thinking, surely if we are wise. I'm reminded of the poem. I think I've shared it before, but certainly it's well worthwhile to reflect upon it again. Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make. All that I treasure and all that I keep, I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge commend when my task is through, my spirit for gaining great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find? All that I've worked for, I've left behind. How tragic! How utterly catastrophic to leave behind all that you work for. And yet, many, it would seem, like to use that idea as the definition for success. As you come near the bottom of that slide, why don't we then take a few moments and just look through some biblical examples of those that were successful. Let's let the Bible do the talking. What did it take to be successful? And you and I will simply leave ourselves as we close the lesson with Bible examples of what success looks like. Let's revisit the man called Joseph first. In, jo in Genesis chapter, 30, chapter 39, verses 2 and following, we encounter this son of Jacob. You and I remember he was the 11th oldest son, and so there were a lot older brothers than he. The older brothers didn't think much of him. In fact, they rather hated him. But that was because, you see, he was daddy's favorite for one thing. But he had also been given various visions by way of dreams, and when he shared them, the brothers didn't like it. But could I ask you to note this? 
In Genesis 39, the Bible says that he found prosperity. He found success. Where did he find it? And how did he find it? Is it in the things consistent with that listing you and I had noted earlier today? Or was it found some other place? You remember it well. He was in prison. Prison. Potiphar's wife had lied about him. He had never done what she said he had done. In fact, he had endeavored to remain always in a position of fidelity and faithfulness, and she lied about him. Sounds a bit unfair, doesn't it? Potiphar had him thrown in prison, and there he was for something he had never done. And in that place, the Bible says he was recognized as being one who had the blessing of God upon him, and he found him prosperous. Notice that doesn't sound a lot like that list we'd seen earlier. But what made him prosperous is the Lord was with him. That was the key, wasn't it? In fact, we notice that statement again later in the very same chapter. As you come near the close of that slide, could I ask you this? The children of Israel, they were given a message about prosperity. It's found for you and me in Deuteronomy 29. God expressly told them, you shall be prosperous, but notice a condition was attached. And that condition was this, in the obedience to the law of God. It is in that way and only in that way that they would know and that they would experience prosperity. I would ask that you and I embed that thinking in our heart. Prosperity for the children of Israel and for Joseph, neither one in any way was linked to any of the elements on those lists that you and I noted earlier. It was linked to the obedience to God, to faithfulness and fidelity to Him, but we aren't nearly finished. The Bible has a lot to say about those who enjoyed success. The text before us today, the one Brother Vestal read from Joshua chapter 1, may I read it again? You may remember that Moses, that great leader of the children of Israel, had just died. A new leader was in place. His name was, of course, to be Joshua. And as Joshua was to begin his leadership, this is what he was told. The book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. Joshua was given the blueprint for success. He was given the blueprint for prosperity, but you'll notice it seemingly had nothing to do with what, again, those listings you and I noted earlier. This one was, don't depart from right or left to the law of God. Meditate on it day and night and never ever move any aside from it. And then you'll have success then you'll have prosperity. Isn't it refreshing then to hear statements that the God of heaven gave to Joshua? The next one on the list I would ask you to consider is the charge that the father named David gave to his son Solomon right before David died. Now there are times as a person reaches near the end of his or her life, they have some rather profound statements and amazing things to share with their children. Among the last words David ever said are those that you'll find recorded in 1 Chronicles 22, verse number 13. At that time, David to Solomon 
gave him the blueprint for success. Gave him what was involved in him being the kind of person that would know prosperity and that would know the kind of life that could be labeled as successful. Would you notice with me as I read from that 22nd chapter of 1 Chronicles? David said, Then shalt thou prosper, if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses with concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Dread not, nor be dismayed. And so here David to Solomon said, Here's what you'll need, son, to be successful. Keep the law of God. God's statutes, God's judgments. And as he stated that, he said, Then shalt thou prosper. Could I remind each of us about that word, then? That's an adverb that identifies when this prosperity would happen. Now, following that example, look at the next one. What about King Uzziah? Now, that's one of the kings of whom we read in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 26.5, there's a rather definitive statement made again about successfulness and prosperity. I'd like to read it in our hearing. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. That's rather strong, isn't it? To appreciate that King Uzziah, he would prosper only so long as he sought the Lord. These examples we've seen so far, again, in detailing biblical characters who enjoyed success, many of their circumstances were so different. But yet, all the while, there's a common linkage. The messages told to them were quite similar. And what success was sounded very, very much the same. What about Hezekiah's prosperity? In 2 Chronicles 31. In that chapter, it's verse number 21, of whom we may read, And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart, and prospered. So there again was another of the kings, and thankfully he chose rightly and he prospered, but it happened in connection to his faithful service to God. It might well be, as you begin to look at these lists, the common theme is already fairly evident. Following Hezekiah, I also invited you to notice the psalmist in the opening three verses of the first of the psalms. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season." You'll notice again, prosperity directly connected to the one who, in the law of God, meditates day and night, doesn't sit amongst the scornful, doesn't sit amongst those who turn their back on the Lord. In the final analysis, you may now begin to wonder. We've looked at a lot of these examples of success. I wonder about failure. We began our lesson highlighting no one sets out on a path to choose failure. But yet the Bible also discusses somewhat about that as well. While we're in that book of Second Chronicles, just look at chapter 24, verse number 20. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, 
Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. Notice the opposite of prosperity, which is again what they sadly were enjoying, if we may call it that. The opposite of prosperity was transgressing God's law. It doesn't matter what else may have been said. They could have been filthy rich. But in the eyes of God, they were still a failure because they had transgressed God's commandment. Their life wasn't directed along the pathway and along the thoroughness of what is involved in obedience to Him. Look at that next example, if you would. In Psalm 73, verse number 12. Now that psalm is a rather well-known one. We had a lesson not too many months ago centered around that one. But on the twelfth verse, did you notice again what it says about this issue of prosperity? Psalm 73, verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. So they may enjoy a fair amount of what the world has to offer. They've got riches and they may prosper here, but in God's sight they're not prospering. And later in verses 15 and 16, we have an image of the seriousness of just how God looked upon them. Surely that degree of failure takes us to Jeremiah 10 verse 21. There God through Jeremiah rather specifically said that those who do not seek the Lord will not prosper. Now, as Jeremiah labored in those days leading up to the Babylonian captivity, he tried to turn the people's heart away from what they viewed prosperity to be to what God really told them it was. And sadly, his message didn't go very far in most instances. But isn't it amazing the strength of that message? According to the Bible, success is this, serving God with faithfulness. And in so doing, you're able to leave this life and leave this earth bound for a far better place than this one. That's what success ultimately is all about. On this next slide, we can develop that a little bit more thoroughly and even with a little bit more strength in some of the following words. Bible failure is rather simple. Dying lost. Dying lost. Doesn't matter what else may have been said about you in life. You may have been married. You may have had children. You may have had a house and a car and a job and a degree. But if you die lost, you're a failure. Because you've left it all behind. Every bit of it. And you're going to appear on the day of judgment. And as you appear there, what will you answer? Because everything that you worked for, you left behind. Bible success on the one hand and Bible failure on the other. Doesn't it encourage our hearts in light of some of the remaining thoughts on that slide? I realize we're each in the midst of a society running rampant with worldliness. The pursuit only of these things that have been listed today as defining success. And we are so thankful for the luxuries of this life. All of us are. But may we never allow them to uniquely and solely determine what is success. 
Because after all, we've learned in all these examples that God dictated and stated and did so rather directly that prosperity and success would only come so long as one was faithful to the Lord and obedient to Him. In that element of submission, you may notice you're the top of that slide. Sometimes we sing a song, and isn't it a touching one in many ways? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up elsewhere beyond the blue. I hope we sing that with meaning. I hope we sing that with understanding. I hope we sing that in light of the message it presents. For the Christian, truer words perhaps were never stated. But for those that are not faithful to the Lord, those that may wish success to be defined as the world does it, we've already learned today that there's an issue, a problem. The two things are contradictory. Our faithfulness and our commitment to the Lord is going to determine whether we're successful or not. And so as you close that slide with me, might we note this. In the Bible so strongly in position to remind us, you and I as Christians are seeking for a better place. We're seeking for a heavenly city, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. I'm reminded of Abraham, aren't you? That man was wealthy. But still, above all things else, he served the Lord. His wealth didn't detract from his service to the Lord. He used that wealth in his service to God. Might you and I be as wise? But ultimately, this issue of failure and success does allow us to close that slide like this. Bible success. We've noticed in all those examples that that success was connected to submission and obedience to what God said. And that success would only come so long as one was working in favor of the Lord. It certainly allows one to ask it this way, what about you and me today? At this moment, are you successful? Am I? Or at this moment, am I a failure? Are you? Might we say it does no good to pretend. I might deceive myself to thinking I'm successful. Again, using the judgment of the world, but again, from the standard of the Word of God, am I successful? Am I one who would meet the biblical definition? If so, then may I in wisdom continue that journey in that same way. But if not, if not, why don't you come forward here in just a few minutes? A song of invitation is going to be sung. It's an opportune time, a convenient time. This issue of success and failure is really connected directly to eternity, as we've already noted. For you and me to close our eyes in death outside the Lord is too awful to contemplate, really. To imagine what that's going to mean at the day of judgment. To understand, like the rich man, that's going to come a time it's too late to do anything about this. But today... Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Today is. While there's breath in your lungs and sentience in your mind, let the Word of God then dwell in each of us so that if our success is not the biblical one, let's begin to make the necessary changes so that that is the case and so that we can enjoy that kind of success for all eternity. Failures, we've noted it today, this issue of dying outside the Lord. Revelation 14, 13 talks somewhat about that. 
Doesn't it challenge us as we close that slide and look at this conclusion one? That all of this asks a personal question. Are you successful? If you right now can't say yes, why not do something about it? While together we stand and while we sing.